Hey, my name is Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you're here on this snowy Sunday morning. Glad uh, just to be with you. Our lead pastor, Justin, and his wife are uh, enjoying a week away, a little bit of rest. And so I have the great honor of sharing God's word with you this morning. So glad that you're here. We are streaming to all of our locations right now. So let's take a moment, say hello to Bridgeport, Hartford, Middletown, North Campus. Come on, New Haven, say hello. We are, as Kirsten said, one church in five locations and excited as God continues to expand that. But listen, six weeks from now is Easter. Isn't that crazy? Six weeks is Easter. It's just sneaking up on us. But listen, we have an incredible Easter Sunday planned for you. We're going to be talking about the most important words on earth, all right? Most important words on earth. That is the subject of the Sunday. Uh, We're going to be having 13 city church services on Easter Sunday. And so make sure that you check where uh, the times are of your campus and location. And be thinking, who can I invite to Easter Sunday? Most people are a little bit more open on Easter Sunday to come, so be thinking about that, all right? Listen, over the last four weeks, we've been in a sermon series called The Standard. We've been looking at how Jesus approaches people and things and time and relationship with the Father. And it seems like each and every one of them run contrary to the way that you and I tend to do most naturally. And so today we finish up our series and we look at leadership. We look at the topic of leadership and how Jesus approaches it. All right? If you had your Bibles, would you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, the first two verses read like this. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. If you want to jot down some notes, the title of this morning's message is A Better Dream. All right? A Better Dream. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we once more just invite you here. Each and every one of us, we take a moment and we just open our hearts to you. We open our ears, our minds to you. We are grateful that you speak to us. In your beautiful name we pray, amen. Amen. Leadership. What comes to mind when you hear the word leadership? Maybe you are are transplanted back to a class from your MBA and you begin to think of big organizations that people admire like Apple or Toyota. Maybe you think of leadership and you think of a position like a general or you think of a CEO or a president. Maybe for you, you hear leadership and you start to think processes and vision and different books and podcasts that you like to read. Maybe you think of somebody who's led a movement like Martin Luther King Jr. and you think, no, that's what leadership is. You know, it's been interesting in the last few years that um, leadership principles and tools have begun making their way into the church world. And so there's been several pastors now that have come up with leadership podcasts where they just come up with really helpful things about uh, hiring and creating budgets and how to keep a team moving in the same direction. And honestly, here at City Church, we're big students of that stuff. We want our organization to work really well. And so, you know, I really love that stuff. And so there's something in us that when we hear leadership, we think system. Right? We think organizations, we think titles, we think promotion and growth, and there's nothing, nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's interesting, though, that as you study history and you look at the life of Jesus, that seems to be where people were leaning back then as well. There's a story that we heard last week about where Jesus takes a lunch from a young boy and feeds tens of thousands of people. 
and people are suddenly struck by who Jesus is and the power of who he is. And so I don't know if you saw the reaction in the story last week, but it says that the people immediately tried to take him and make him king. Make him king. And there's something that we hear that we think, yeah, like I can see why that would be. Here's Jesus, and he wants his name to go forward, the kingdom of God to go forward. The most natural place, the best platform perhaps he could do that is if he was king over a nation. And so we think, yeah, of course, Jesus. Except, you know as you read the Gospels, that's not at all the approach that Jesus decided to take. See, at its core, leadership is influence. Leadership is the ability to influence others. And so Jesus comes to this earth knowing he's going to influence people and has various choices on what type of leadership style he wants to have. He could become king. He could start an organization. He could launch a nonprofit. There's everything that Jesus can do. And if we want to learn about leadership, we study his life and we realize that Jesus' approach is radically different. Instead of doing any of those things, what does Jesus do? He invests his life, three years of ministry, into 12 ordinary dudes. Dudes that were overlooked by the other rabbis, we know that because they were in their trade of their fathers at this point, so they'd already been overlooked. And by every stretch of the imagination, as we discussed last week, this should have happened and been forgotten. There's no reason on the surface that Jesus should, should still be known 2,000 years later. And yet, 12 men turned into a billion who today celebrate the name of Jesus. What did Jesus know that we seem to naturally forget? Jesus decided his method for changing the world would be to invest his life into 12 guys. See, Jesus knows something about the way we interact with others and the power of compound interest, the power that leadership being influenced and that if we will learn to leverage that influence in the right way, that that is how a life of greatness gets created. Jesus, after investing his life into these 12 disciples, comes to the end of his life, and we've heard this in the Great Commission, and what does he do? I want, to know, I want you to notice what he doesn't do. Jesus doesn't say, now go out and run the best companies. He doesn't say, go and become general of the army. He says, go and make disciples. There's something inherently different about the way Jesus views people and leadership that you and I don't tend to naturally do. And discipleship is kind of this churchy word, if we're honest, that in its most simple form just means the process of helping people follow Jesus. It's the process of helping somebody in your life begin to follow Jesus. But if we're honest, we take some of these other things that we've talked about, organizations, CEOs, presidents, and we compare those two things, and discipleship seems a little dull, right? Not nearly as flashy, not nearly as, as important seeming. And so you say to me, man, I've got dreams, I've got dreams that I think God gave me about starting that business, about seeing the poor met through this nonprofit. I was talking to a guy this week who has a dream of just providing a life for his family that he was never able to provide. And it's not that those dreams are wrong. It's, it's that we've allowed ourselves to become perhaps intimidated by those dreams and miss out on the thing God wants us to spend the bulk of our time doing. Because you say to me, man, I've got to get this thing off the ground so I don't actually have time 
to invest in people. I don't actually have time to, to give that time to that person. And what we're not realizing is that the things that God is calling us to do, we are elevating over the thing he wants us to do ultimately. Some of us here are frustrated because we feel like we haven't been given the opportunity that we need in order to have influence. And so you're not up here on this stage preaching. That business you're trying to get off the ground, it seems to be taking a little bit while. Your boss keeps overlooking you. And so you think, man, I have no opportunity to do anything. And what you're tying into is this God-given thing inside of us that says your life is meant to matter. Your life is meant to exist for a purpose. Your life is meant to leave a legacy and meant to have enormous influence. And so we immediately think, because we're human, people or systems, organizations, titles, and Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing it. You want to have that life of greatness? It's people. It's learning to invest in people. See, I wonder if what God wants you to see this morning through our text and through our time together is that the greatest call in your life is not the thousand people that you'll speak to one day, but the handful that you are able to mentor. That greatness is not defined in how many people follow you on social media, but the couple of people who follow your life. Jesus wants to redefine greatness, and he wants to redefine the way we approach it. See, that desire inside of us is not wrong. God just wants to take it and just tweak it just a little bit. What I want you to see this morning, and you may not believe me, is that if we will adopt the lifestyle that Paul is talking about here that we're going to learn about together, that your life can impact not just a hundred, not even just a thousand, that your life has the ability to impact millions. Your life has the ability to impact millions. Millions. And I know what you're thinking. That's preacher exaggeration again. There you go. Overselling, under-delivering. I want to show you a model today of leadership that will blow your mind to the effect of how God can use you if you will let him. See, some of us, we talk about this lifestyle of investing in other people. And we even feel a little bit intimidated. We feel like, man, I don't really know what I have to give. I'm not really sure if I have anything to share with people. Paul breaks it down really simple for us. That if we're going to pursue a life where we're investing in others regularly, he gives us four qualities of a disciple maker, a a churchy word that says, I'm a person who helps create followers of Jesus. And these four qualities are qualities that are simple. They're not easy, but they're simple, and they can and should be pursued by each and every Christian. And listen, if you will pursue them, if you will chase them down to see them take some root in your life and begin to blossom, you can impact far more than you could possibly imagine. Your family tree could look radically different. You could be a part of seeing this region reached with the gospel if we'll adjust our mindset. Shall we look at it together? All right, all right. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy. This is actually Paul's final letter that he writes. Uh, At this point, Paul is very near to being killed for his faith. And so Timothy is one of his most beloved spiritual sons. And so he writes this letter to Timothy. And what he writes in it, he begins the first chapter just by reminiscing a little bit, giving him an update. And then when we start here in chapter 2, it's like the the get to business portion of the letter. So he writes that again. He says, you then, my child, 
Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. All right, enough of that nice stuff. Now it's time to get to work. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He begins by reminding him about the gospel. The gospel that will serve as his motivation. See, the gospel serves as our motivation when God begins to take hold of our heart. And maybe you're here today and you came from a life where things look very different than they look right now. And the motivation is you understand what freedom is. You understand what joy is. And so you begin to look at the people in your life that you love and that you care about. And you say, man, I've got to get this thing in your hands. And they're like, stop being pushy. You're like, you don't get it. You don't know what you're missing. And this urgency begins to creep up in our spirit as we realize the gift that we have. And so people talk about, man, you know, you Christians are always telling us about Jesus. Yes, because we love you. Because I know what I have in Christ, and so I want you to have it. And this urgency begins to just develop in our spirit that says, man, I have to, have, I have to share with you what I know. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. I was reading in Acts chapter 4 this week about Peter and John. And these guys are beginning to tell the story about Jesus after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And the religious leaders of the day are, are uh, angry about it, so they're arresting them and they're beating them and they're commanding them, never talk about him again. And it's this really cool little phrase in Acts chapter 4 where it says, you do whatever you have to do, but we cannot help but share about what we have seen and what we have heard. We can't help but share about what we have seen and what we have heard. I was talking to a friend of mine this week on Monday, a gentleman named John Simjin who attends our, our North Campus. And we're just talking about his business. He runs his own business, and he starts telling me about the various employees that he have, has. He tells me how, you know, most guys, when they start with my company, you know, they, they don't really follow Jesus. They're just guys who want to get into the trade. So on the very first day, what do I do? I take him for a long drive, and we get the gospel out of the way. And I'm like... That's awesome. Good for you. And he's like, you know, come to think about it, my 30 years running this business, yeah, I guess there's never been a guy who worked for me who didn't give his heart to Christ eventually. And I was like, all right. He goes, Friday mornings, on my dime, I take them out to breakfast, I pay them for their time, I buy their food, and I set the conversation. I was like, good for you, boss. He's like, yeah, listen, I'm going to pay you to be here, and I'm going to tell you about Jesus while we're here. And we get to talking, he's talking about his business, and then he starts talking about his family. He's like, you know, I was the one in my family who came to follow Jesus first. And then he begins counting his different family members. Yeah, then my dad and my mom did, and then my, my wife, and my in-laws, siblings, and daughters, nieces. He starts naming his whole family, and he goes, yeah, I guess they've all given their heart to Jesus now. And what I so appreciated that in that moment was this urgency that he carries that says, life is short, I have something to give, I can't help but share about Christ. And the thing that you've got to wrestle with that I've been wrestling all week is this. Have I lost my urgency? Have I lost my urgency? Are there people in my life right now that I care about, that I love, that I need to introduce to Christ? Have I lost my urgency? So the gospel is first and foremost our motivation. It creates urgency in our heart. But it's also the foundation on which we stand. And so it gives us urgency to share it, but then it also gives us hope to share. It gives us encouragement to share. It gives us a life of freedom and joy to share. So you have this thing that burns in your heart that you want people to see and that you've got solid ground to stand on. So it begins as your motivation and continues as your foundation. And that's why Paul drives Timothy back to it. 
Because the first quality of a disciple maker or a person who continually invests in others to help them follow Jesus is this. He or she regularly revisits the cross. Regularly revisits the cross. You don't have to be a spiritual giant to daily sit underneath the cross and be humbled by God's love, be humbled by the way he has changed you, and just have this desire to see that change happen in others. It's a simple thing, but we very quickly forget, don't we? He continues, says this, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. Entrust to faithful men. This word here, entrust, is a unique word in that it's got two different meanings. And I think Paul has something for us to learn from each. And the first is this word that means to teach or to train, to set before them. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, strengthen yourself in the gospel. And then those guys that are around you, begin to train them. Begin to teach them what I have known, what I have taught you. Time to get to work. And so for you, maybe there's someone at your job that just began following Christ. And so they're so new to the faith that they have no idea how to spend time with God. This is your opportunity to begin to step in and teach and train and say, hey, listen, let's go through the purpose-driven life together. Let's begin to read the book of John together. And what you're doing is just training them, beginning to teach them. You're passing on the things that you've learned over time. And honestly, this is where things get really, really fun. It's so fun to sit with someone who knows nothing about following Christ and begin to teach and inform them what it looks like to do this. And I I really, really love doing this. I was thinking about how just a few years ago I had the opportunity to do this with Damien. And many of of you know Damien. Damien is on staff at our New Haven campus here, but he also leads our student ministries, which, by the way, just went on their first retreat last week, and several students gave their lives to Christ. Amen. Isn't that awesome? I'm believing that every retreat these kids go on, we're going to see kids come into faith. And so really excited about that. But Damien came to me just a couple years ago. Maybe it was three and a half or so now. And we sit down at Starbucks and he begins just telling me the story about his life and how his life is such a mess. And he's talking. And I just looked at him. I said, listen, if you'll put in the work, if you'll stay humble and teachable and you'll work with me, in 12 months you won't even recognize who this person is. And he did it. And over the next 12 months, myself and Jeremiah and others just began to invest in him, show, show him what it looks like to follow Christ. And 12 months later, I remember sitting down to him saying, listen, I know I'm not all the way there yet, but you're right. I don't even recognize that person that I was a year ago. See, there's something incredibly powerful about passing on those things that you've learned. And you might wonder, Mike, I'm not really sure what to do, you know. Like, that sounds good and all, but if I sat down with someone, I wouldn't even know where to start. And I want to just kind of remind you, we talk a lot about golden habits here at City Church. And if you're not sure what those are, you can check the website. We've got lots of resources about them. We did a whole sermon series. But they're these habits of following God. And so I'll just hit them quick. There'll be a refresher for some of you. But the first habit that you can begin teaching to others is just spending time with God every day. Maybe you start with 15 minutes or 20 minutes and you, you're teaching them. What does it look like to pray? What does it look like to spend time with God? Then they get that urgency because of what they're seeing happen in their heart. And that's the second thing. You help them share their faith. It's this habit of sharing their faith. Third, we're teaching them to listen to God. Listen, we serve a God who still speaks. That is a foreign concept, isn't it? If you're not a follower of Jesus. Like we talk about it like it's nothing. It's like, oh yeah, God was talking to me. Most people are like, 
That sounds a little weird, you know. And so if they're new to faith, you've got to teach them what does it look like to hear from God. Fourth, as you get to know them, it's time to begin to challenge them. And so living within sexual boundaries, maybe you're pushing them to live holy and live pure, holding them accountable. Fifth is living a generous lifestyle where they open their time, their energy, and their resources, and they say, God, everything I have is yours. Tell me how you would have me use it and spend it. Sixth, I'll buzz through these ones, are just is uh, embracing Sabbath, a work and rest rhythm into their week of taking one full day off for uh, rest and restoration. And lastly, when they're ready, make disciples. Make disciples, all right? You're passing on these things that you know. I, I remember just watching or just reading in Luke 11, just seeing Jesus just instruct the disciples in this way where it says, Lord, teach us to pray. And he goes, okay, when you pray, do it like this. And he teaches them the, uh, the Father's or the Lord's Prayer. And so you see Jesus just instructing and teaching and instructing. And if you, there are some, just as a quick aside, there are some resources on our website under the growing down section of our website that are immensely helpful if you are teaching somebody to follow Jesus or for yourself as well. But I remember for me, I was 20 years old when I started following Christ. And I had grown up in a Christian home, but it took me two decades to finally get it. And so I'm a sophomore at college, and I finally decide to start pursuing Jesus. And so I wander into uh, a local church's college ministry. And there's only maybe 15 or 20 people there, but there were four guys that very quickly just embraced me, just basically gobbled me up, and they said, you're mine, and you're going to stick with us. And so it wasn't long before Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I was eating lunch with a guy named Dave, and I was on Thursday nights at the pastor's house watching him lead his family, studying the Bible together. I was going to church with a guy on Sunday, and in these six months, I had these three or four guys heavily investing in me, and honestly, in all of my time following Jesus, it was probably the season of most rapid growth because I had these guys investing in me heavily. I remember one day driving in the car with Dave, and uh, Dave was, we were talking about music, and I had been in a band with several of my best friends at that point, and it wasn't a great scene, so I was like telling him I was feeling convicted, and it was time to leave, and he's like, oh, you like music? And I'm like, yeah, you know, kind of been in music my whole life. He's like, I got something to show you. He's like, there's this new Christian band. They are killer. He says, they're so good you can't even tell they're Christian. I was like, so that's the barometer for good Christian music. So good, you can't even tell. And so he puts it on, and I'm like, "Mm, actually, I think this is Christian music. And so we're listening to it, and he's like, man, these guys are awesome. I'm like, yeah, yeah, totally. Who are they? He's like, get ready. They're the next big thing, casting crowns. And I'm like, this is different, you know? And there's nothing against casting crowns, but I had grown up on 311, Nirvana, you know, Foo Fighters. And so I'm like, this is an adjustment. Yeah, this is going to be an adjustment. And though I never grabbed hold of Dave's musical taste, then or now, no offense, I just, uh, I so appreciate and remember the conversations that he and I had with our Bibles open, sitting in the cafeteria, just reading through the Gospels together as he taught me how to read the Bible and he taught me how to hear from God. And listen, you can be that for someone. It's a long, lengthy process often. Oftentimes it's like training a new employee where you give them something to do and then they fail. And then you teach them and then they fail. And it's this process of, of guiding them and helping them. But there's nothing sweeter than pushing somebody to lead a community group, watching them flop, and then teach them again. There's nothing more fun than watching freedom take root in someone's, someone's life for maybe the first time as they conquer sin. 
Listen, you get somebody to an encounter and they come back and they tell you of radical change that God did in just three days. You push them to get baptized and with tears in your eyes, you watch them come out of the water and I promise a thought goes through your mind that says, I will give my life to making disciples. Because look at me, this is what you were made to do. This is how God wired us. And there's something in us that agrees in our spirits when we see it happen. And this is the second quality. Simply put, it's a person who commits to pass it on. That commits to pass it on. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have everything figured out. You can just begin to pass on what you know. As I mentioned earlier, though, this word entrust has two meanings. The first is, you know, to pass it on or to teach or to train. The second is to invest, to invest. It's a bit of a financial analogy that Paul is, is driving us towards here. And it's this idea of, of investing in people, much like the way you might invest in a company. So for me, you know, if I buy stock in Bank of America, I become pretty interested in the things of Bank of America. Because in a very real way, as Bank of America has a good quarter, my money grows, right? This is the world of, of stocks, and we stay pretty linked up to these things when we're interested. And when they have a bad quarter, they fall. And so what, or my money goes down. And so I stay interested and invested in a company's well-being. And so Paul is saying, listen, you need to invest your life in someone else. Not just stand at a distance, not just teach them, but actually let your heart begin to invest. And the truth is, this is hard. You will cry tears of joy when they come out of that water. But you'll cry tears with them when they lose their dad. You'll cry tears of joy when you watch them make changes in their life that are fruitful and long-lasting, and you'll weep with them when they make decisions that go against God's best for them. And you need to know walking in that there is a risk to choosing to invest because your heart goes with it. I remember several years ago now that uh, I was on my way to the beach for a week of vacation up in Maine with my extended family. I'll never forget, I'm in the car driving up. I was by myself for some reason, and I get a phone call. There's a friend of mine on the other line, and she's crying, and she's telling me about this other friend of ours who it just had come out that he'd been having an affair for the last year. And this is someone who my wife and I hung out with. He and his wife, we love them dearly. I had worked really closely with him, and my heart broke. It broke because I was mad. It broke because I was sad for his family that got tore apart. I was angry at myself for not seeing it. And I'll never forget for like three or four days, I'm sitting on the beach in Maine on vacation. And I'll never forget feeling this weird thing going on where it's 80 degrees, sunny and blue skies. And all I feel is like storm clouds over my soul. And it was literally three or four days. I was just like, I couldn't really talk to people. I was upset. I was depressed. Because my heart had invested deeply. And in a way, like I was wounded and I was hurting because of what happened. And so listen, we cry tears of joy and tears of sadness. And there's a part of us that if we're not careful that when we get let down, we just begin to step back. That we get jaded. That we think, man, I'm tired of getting let down. I'm not letting my heart connect with anyone else. I'm not investing in that person because what if that happens again? What if that person lets me down? And this is why Paul starts us back at the gospel. 
because we revisit the cross again. And we stand underneath the grace of God and we say, God, by your mercy and grace, I can push forward. Paul says just a a couple of verses earlier, he said, God gives you a spirit, not of fear, but of power. And so we stand looking at that and we just say, God, this is going to hurt. God, I'm afraid of what might happen. God, I'm afraid of letting my heart connect and actually investing myself or my family into someone else or into their families. And God says, press forward. Don't be fearful. This is what I have for you. Get your foundation set on who you are, hope and encouragement that comes in knowing who you are in God, and press forward. Put your shoulders back and get back to work. And this is the third quality of a person who embraces a life of disciple-making. It's a person who embraces the risk. You're not going in blind. You're not going in naive. You are embracing the risk and saying, listen, even if I get hurt, even if it feels like I wasted my time, this is God's instruction, and so I will choose to go forward. He finishes our, our verse by saying this. Who will be able to teach others also? So reminder, he says, in what you have heard from me, entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also? And so the inevitable question comes, all right, so, Mike, what if I choose to do this? What if I stand on the cross and begin to teach others and embrace the risk that comes with it? Do I do it for my whole life? Do I eventually just choose a couple people and spend the next 50 years with them? It wasn't Jesus' model. It wasn't Jesus' model. It's not what Paul tells Timothy here either. What do we do after we've raised someone up in Christ, after we've seen them mature and grow? We send them out to do the same. We send them out to do the same. We see this in Jesus, his very final words to the disciples, as we talked about earlier. You can imagine how hard this must have been for the disciples. Here, for the last three years, they had been spending almost every waking moment together. They'd been watching Jesus, learning. I can bet that their hearts were deeply tied to one another's. You can bet that these were the closest relationships, perhaps, they'd ever had and ever known. And then Jesus has the audacity to say, hey, go out into all the world and make disciples. And if I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, Jesus, can we all just like go to Jerusalem and do this together? Like, are you telling me we have to split? That's uncomfortable. That's hard. My heart is going to ache. My heart is going to be saddened because I love these guys. I, I count on them. They mean the world to me. I see them every day. I get strength from them. What do you mean go out into all the world? What do you mean disperse? And it's painful and it's difficult when there's a shift in the relationship. And maybe you felt some of this pain in your own life. Maybe you were a part of a community group that uh, began to grow and grow, and so you decided to split. And it was like, oh, man, I know we have to because there's 30 people in this living room, but I'm going to miss you guys. And there's this, like, this thing inside of you that just aches a little bit. But if we're not careful, we get comfortable. If we're not careful, we get comfortable. And we invest just in a couple people for a long period of time, and we miss the power of this model. Jesus says, do it. Because in the beauty of the kingdom of God, our hearts stay knit even when geography changes. There's a closeness that comes because we each carry the Holy Spirit and we've walked together through a lot that you pick up the phone and it feels like you just pick up right where you left off. There is a bond that transcends distance when you've done work in the things of God. And so Jesus says, listen, go into all the world and make disciples. 
remember, this is my plan. And so we push ourselves forward. Again, we go back to the cross, remembering that more people need to hear about him. More people need to experience life in him. And so we keep pushing ourselves. And so we have that conversation where we say, listen, we've been together for several years now. I've kind of taught you everything I know. It's time for you to go and do the same. It's time for you to go out and find your own person and begin to pour into them. And that's the fourth quality of a person who spends their life developing and raising up others. It's that they remember the mission. They remember the mission. So you're here, and you're thinking to yourself, all right, that sounds pretty simple, and now I'm convinced it was preacher exaggeration. That can't possibly be Jesus' method for reaching the world. It seems boring. It seems a little bit dull. It doesn't seem like it has all that much power. But what you're missing is the power of compound interest. That God takes things and over time grows them and grows them and grows them so that eventually they look radically different and larger than they were when they started. You know, in 1960, there was an MIT meteorologist called Edward Lorenz. And what he was trying to do was build a system that replicated weather patterns. And so he was in his room on his computer creating weather patterns, and the the, uh, simulations were just taking way too long. And so they were very defined. They were um, six digits. So it was like one point and then six. So very, very you know, minute numbers at the end. So he said, let me just cut off the last three. Let me just round to the nearest thousand and we'll go from there. It'll make things speed up a little bit. He comes back to his room and he's astonished at what he finds because what he sees is that just removing those three very, very small numbers in replicating weather patterns made patterns around the world change dramatically. And he did the math, and it seemed that taking off those three numbers had about the same power as a butterfly flapping its wing one time. And yet, all the way around the world, clouds were moving in a different way because of one flap of a butterfly wing. And so what God does for us is he takes these seemingly small things that we look at and we say, man, those aren't really that important. You know, investing in that one person is not really all that important. God takes the small things and does something with them that we can't possibly comprehend. See, we can't possibly see the radical effects of what happened when we're faithful to the little things he calls us to. And so I began to think to myself, Just of my own life, you know, raising up guys, uh, pouring into guys. I thought, all right, what if I just invested in in three guys in three years? Three guys in three years that I had over my house or I met for coffee or I just regularly worked with. And I thought, all right, three years, I think I could could work well with a guy and in three years of working regularly with me, have him be at a place where he's pretty mature. So at the end of the three-year mark, these three guys, I say to them, hey, listen, this has been great. It's time for you to go and do the same. And those three guys go out and find their own three. And they do the exact same thing. So at year six now, there's now 12 guys that my life has had the ability to impact as you begin to kind of take the pyramid down. And I thought, what about if six went to nine years? And nine went to 12 years. And 12 years went to 15 years. What would it look like if I was just faithful, just faithful over the years, just three guys at a time? I hand off those three, and then I keep working. I get three more, three more. And I thought, what would happen in just like one generation worth of time? All right, for the next 30 or 40 years that I give my life to raising up people. And I began to ran the numbers. And I thought, God, what would it look like? 
and written the numbers to say, God, if in 40 years I did that, three guys every three years, how many lives could I impact? You ready for this? 1,594,323 people. 1,594,323 people. All right? Listen, you're not going to get that by Twitter, right? You're not going to get those kinds of numbers by, by getting a big organization. You're going to do it by following the principles that God has set before us of compound interest that if you'll give your life regularly investing in others, one life, one life lived intentionally can impact millions. And I began to think, you know, we talk a lot about seeing New England reached, about seeing this, this region in just one generation turned over. And I thought, if one faithful life has the ability to impact over a million and a half people, what would it take to see this region reached? And I looked at New England's population. You know how many people live in New England? 15 million. 15 million. It sounds like a lot. But I began to dream, what if 100 people did this? What if just a hundred people gave their lives to investing in others? What could God do? And I began maybe for one of the very first times to go, God could do this. There is the real possibility that this would be more than just a dream, that we could actually see a region changed. Not by just planting a hundred churches. Listen, church, if we plant a hundred churches and do not disciple well, we will accomplish very little. But if we plant 50 or 20 or 15 disciple-making churches, we can change this land. If you will allow your life to begin to be put into, yeah, amen. If you will embrace a life where you say, listen, it's not flashy. It's not, it's not all that exciting. It's just faithful, all right? If you will just embrace this faithful life, and I'll do it, and Joey will do it, and all around this room we begin to say, all right, listen, I'm in. I'll do this together. That's how God will reach New England. Not just with church planting, with faithful people like you and me doing this, with our coworkers and with our family and with the people that God has put in our lives. And I just wonder, in one generation, what might this landscape look like? So you say to me, Mike, I got dreams. I got dreams of starting that business. I got dreams of, of seeing this thing started or ascending to this level or making this amount of money or seeing my son be an Olympic skier, or whatever your dreams are, they're not bad, they're just not ultimate. See, we're taking dreams that God has given us, saying that because of those, we don't have enough time to do the very thing he's created us to do. See how we're getting that backwards? God wants to take your dream and use it to make followers of him. And so you got to ask yourself, God, this thing that I'm pursuing, am I leveraging it to the max I can to see your gospel go forward, to see your kingdom advance. And I just wonder, have we traded his dreams for ours? Have we traded his dreams for ours? Stand up. Stand to your feet, would you please? I want to ask you this morning. Listen, there is something simple about this. There is something that doesn't sound exciting. There's something just faithful, little by little. But what I want to ask you this morning is, are you in? I want you to see that this is Jesus' method for transforming the world. It's the way he chose, it's the way he told his disciples to do it, and it's the way Paul instructs Timothy and us. And so you've got to ask yourself, that thing inside of me that longs to have my life matter, that, that has been looking to different ways to see it matter, could it be that it's right in front of you? 
Could it be that that life of lasting legacy, that eternity would literally look a little bit different because of your life, is actually right in front of you, is sitting in the cubicle next to you, is, is living in your house with you? What would it look like if you adopted a life where you said, God, I will do the simple, faithful work of just sharing my life with others in order that your mission could go forward and my family could look different, eternity could be changed, and New England could once again be the land where people know and worship the name of Jesus. I want to ask you this morning, I want to take a moment just across this room. God is speaking to you this morning, speaking uniquely to you about your situation, about your relationships, and not with, without looking around, I want to ask you the question, are you in? Are you in? If you feel like God is leading you to do this and you don't know how to do it, that's okay. But you feel like, God, I'm willing to take that next step right here in a moment of courage. Would you just raise your hand? Would you just raise your hand to say, God, I'll do it. God, I want my life to matter. God, I want my life to go beyond just what it is. And if it means investing in the small, then I'll do the small. If it means sharing you with that person at work, I'll do it. God, would you bless the work of these hands? God, we believe that this is your method of seeing the kingdom go forward. And so, God, we pray that you would give us courage where we need it. God, you would embolden us where we need it. God, would you help us to be people who invest well in order that this land would know and proclaim the name of Jesus again. God, we long to see it happen in just one generation. So would you do it, Lord? Would you do it in our time and in our place and in our midst, God? Come on, let's sing. Let's lift our voices together, praising the name of Jesus.